Well, good morning, brothers. Good to see you again. I have been, uh, thank you for welcoming me back. I've been <clears throat> preaching and teaching a lot, so I've been grateful for others who are, uh, uh, help carry the teaching load of this church. I preach a morning and two services in the morning and most every Sunday evening, and then I added a, a teaching uh, ministry I had on Wednesday nights, so I was glad to be able to tag team with somebody to teach amen, you know, like that country song, I ain't as good as I once was. I was, uh, I used to do, uh, to teach almost every day, but I'm, uh, I'm getting wiser, or not older, just wiser. <clears throat> but good to see your shining faces again this morning. We're going to turn to Psalm 32. I'm glad to come back into one of my favorite psalms. I think it'll become one of your favorites as well as you understand it better. Another psalm from David. We call it an Asher psalm. Asher is one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Asher means blessed. And last time I was with you, or uh, the first time I was with you, we, we studied another Asher psalm. Blessed is the man. Psalm 1, and uh, here is the, you know, it begins with Asher, begins with blessing, and then the explanation is, why are you blessed? And this may surprise you uh, at first, uh, because you say, this, this, isn't a, this isn't a psalm of blessing, this is a psalm of confession. Ah, well, there is the secret to the blessing that we admit who we are. St. Augustine, this was one of St. Augustine's favorite psalms. Maybe it was his, his favorite psalm. Augustine was uh, a church father, North Africa, a bishop of Hippo, and uh, in the fourth century, he wrote major, a couple of major books, wrote several books, but two of them uh, are real classics. One is The City of God, where he is describing the fall of the Roman Empire and uh, reminding Christians that they are not citizens of that kingdom which waxes and wanes, that rises and falls. They're, they're, they're citizens of a kingdom that will never fail, a city that will never, never fail. That's the city of God. And the city of man may seem very oppressive at times, but that's, that's not our city. That's one of the major books he wrote. Before that, he wrote Confessions confessions, in which he confessed everything he could remember in his whole life, not just the bad, but also the good, especially the faithfulness of God. I'll come back to that in a moment, but the way it touches this psalm is that St. Augustine said the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of real knowledge, the beginning of learning anything accurately is to know oneself to be a sinner. Your knowledge of any topic whatsoever will always be skewed until you begin with this very basic fact. I am a sinner. I am broken. I am not the way I am supposed to be, and this world isn't either. In fact, this psalm meant so much to him, he had it uh, put on the printed at the foot of his bed so that he could remember. And this phrase, the beginning of knowledge, is to know oneself to be a sinner. Well, may that be 
our conviction, but not the end. May that not be the, the final thing we learn today, that we're sinners. There's much, much, infinitely better news than that. Let's look for it by reading Psalm 32. <clears throat> Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. <clears throat> you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together, brothers. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word which Augustine also said in another place, finds us. Would you find us today with your word? Find us in those parts of our hearts and souls where we are, where we are denying that we are sinners, that we are broken people. <clears throat> find us in those places where, <clears throat> where we know we are broken and sinful but find it impossible to believe there is forgiveness with you in Jesus Christ. Find us, find us with your cross. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake. God's men said together, amen. About uh, midway through my ministry in St. Louis, a, <clears throat> a young mother came and her little boy started coming to our church, and she had just become a Christian. And uh, having become a Christian, she realized that the church she was in uh, never opened the Bible, never taught from the Bible, didn't preach from the Bible, and, and in fact taught that the Bible was full of errors and was, was uh, you know, something that was, was outdated and something of the past. So she had been growing in God's Word, and she, she found our church, and we met uh, together, she wanted to interview me before she brought uh, her child into this, into this new church. And I asked her to share a testimony with me, and she said, you know, it didn't start out so well. It kind of started out rocky. I was, in this, I was in this ministry called Bible Study Fellowship, which is one of my favorites, by the way. I'm glad it's so vibrant here in, in Memphis, too. But she was in Bible Study Fellowship, which was, and uh, all the leaders of Bible Study Fellowship were also members of our church. So the woman who was teaching hers was a member of our church, a new member of our church, and, and uh, Margie went up to her 
after one of the lectures, and she said, you know, Mary Beth, I'm, I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm missing something. I'm, I'm not quite tracking with you because, you know, the more I listen to you, the more I feel like scum. And Mary Beth, with quite a sense of humor, a twinkle in her eye, said, well, that's because you are scum. Well, that took her back, you know, you're not supposed to talk like that, she thought, as a Christian to a Christian, that, uh, yeah, you are scum. She let that settle for a while. And I'm scum too. And that's the good news of the gospel, that it tells us exactly who we are, but it has an antidote for it, it has a cure for it. We admit that we are what the Bible says we are, scum is a good word. And then he's the one who cleans us up, substitutes his righteousness for our scum. But you have to start there. The beginning of true knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Now, this passage begins by defining exactly who we are, what sin is in all of its parts. Here we have a very thorough anatomy of sin, three different words used to describe sin and its, its various aspects of evil. The first word is transgression. Blessed is the man, <clears throat> is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Pesha is the Hebrew word. And transgression means rebellion against God, direct rebellion against God. It's the, I, it's the attitude, I know what God requires of me, I know what God prohibits, but I'm going to do it anyway, or I'm not going to do it. That's transgression. Second uh, word used is kata, sin, comes from the world of archery. It could come from the world of my archery, which is missing the mark. You, you, you aim in one direction, and uh, the arrow doesn't hit the mark, flies off in another direction. It may get close, but it doesn't hit the mark. So this is, this is keeping maybe a part of the law, but not the whole of the law. Jesus exposed this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of sin in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you know, I... You, uh, you say that you don't, you, don't, uh, you don't murder, but when you call someone a fool, when you condemn someone, then you are as good as murdering that one in your heart. You say you don't commit adultery, but if you look at a woman so as to lust after her, you've committed adultery. You say that you keep your word and you don't lie, but you, you have ways of fudging and uh, effectively crossing your fingers behind your back when you make a promise. This is keeping a semblance of the law, an outward form of righteousness, but your heart is contrary to that or you're doing something in secret that undermines that. Iniquity is the third word, hawan, and that describes a relationship with self. That describes our motives. Our motives are never absolutely pure. Without Christ, without Christ's atonement for even our best works, our best works in the end are for manipulative purposes or for pride or for gaining something. So we are sinful through and through. But the good news, the psalmist says, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. 
And just as there is a word for each version of sin, there is a word for each need for sin. There is a, a specific antidote for every form of sin. There is you are forgiven, that is to lift up and carry away. I'll take that burden from you, that guilt that you're bearing, I can take it away. Uh, I'll describe that more in a moment. And then the next word is covered. It's the same word used in verse 5, I did not cover up my sin, but uh, positively here, God says, I will cover your sin. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And uh, the third word is uh, impute or does not count, kasav. He does not, this is a legal word, he doesn't impute it to your record. Now, let's put it all together. What does it look like for God to lift up, to cover, not to impute? Well, those words can be found, a couple of those words can be found in the, in the story of the Day of Atonement. You know, those of you who studied Hebrews with me, we talked about this, we talked about this uh, fairly often. Let, let's review it just for a moment. In the, in the Holy of Holies, that central place of the temple, the tabernacle, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, separated from the people, even the other priests, by a four-inch thick curtain. Only the high priest could go into that place once a year. And uh, that high priest had to put bells on the ends of his robe and a rope around his uh, leg because if he didn't offer the proper sacrifice, he wasn't, wasn't prepared himself, God would strike him dead and they'd have to drag him out of there when the bell quit ringing. And he went in there to do a very specific work. He killed, he first of all killed two, or, or he killed one goat, he had two goats, he killed one, slit the throat of one. He carried the blood of that one into the altar. We'll come back to that. The other one, he put his hands on the living goat, put his hands on that one, and then he kicked it in the rear end and sent it out over the horizon so that it disappeared. The symbol was that the sin symbolically placed on the head of that scapegoat would lift up and carry away the sins of the people. Well, then the, the priest had to do another bit of work. He had to go into the Holy of Holies, and he take the, took the blood of the other, and he put it on the ark, or the, uh, the, over the Ark of the Covenant, onto the mercy seat in particular. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, is that three-foot-long golden box that had the, the law in it, the Ten Commandments, and some other, some other artifacts representing Israel's... Uh, um, uh, wilderness wanderings and so on. So that, little, that golden box, you know, which is now in the, the, the archives of the, of, uh, of the Smithsonian, according to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. <clears throat> but it's uh, not really. It's the, the Ark of the Covenant, that little gold box has the law in it, but on top of the box, over the law, where the seraphim, the mercy seat, the, the seraphim, the angels reached their... their wings together, and where they touched, that was called the seat or the location, the focus of mercy. The priest would go through that four-inch thick curtain and take the blood of the other goat and he would put it, he would coat it on the mercy seat. 
And the image was this, that as God looked at the children of Israel in relationship to the law in the box, He could not see them in relationship to the law except by looking through the blood of His mercy. Now, Jesus merged those two goats into one lamb so that the one who puts his transgression, his sin, his, <clears throat> his iniquity on the Lamb of God, God cannot see you any longer except He look at you through the mercy, the blood of the scapegoat, the last lamb who has lifted up and taken away your sin, who has covered your sin with his blood, who has healed your transgression, your rebellion against God. Is that good news? Every form of sin is described and every form of sin described is healed by the specific substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. God forgives sins. Secondly, see verses 3 to 7, God judges unconfessed sin. The question is not, will God forgive sin in all its parts? The question is, will you confess your sin in all its parts? Now, this is where the text goes to meddling, isn't it? Verses 3 to 7. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. He's surely talking about, David is surely talking about his sin with Bathsheba. That Old Testament story is, it goes like this. David <clears throat> got lazy one spring, didn't want to go out to war. Wanted to sit back and rest and he stayed behind. He's wandering around with too much time on his hands and not enough accountability. He wanders out on the, out on the balcony and he sees a woman bathing, he lusts after her, he not only lusts after her, but he commands her to come into his bedroom. He, she is a married woman and he uh, has, a, she becomes pregnant as a result. David knows that's going to be scandalous, <clears throat> so he takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't confess his sin, he doesn't go to the Lord for his forgiveness He's going to take matters into his own hands, so he devises a way. He thinks that will cover it up. He commands her husband, who was one of his mighty men, one of the inner circle of men who would lay down his life for David in an instant, who ran upon, who was one of those men like uh, who, who uh, David said, I wish I had some water from from Bethlehem, and one of those, those, a group of those mighty men went in and took on those Philistines and grabbed some water. They loved David so much, they risked their lives to bring him a sip of water from his hometown well. This is the kind of man that David sinned against. He brought him back home and said, uh, you need to spend some time with your wife. And, and uh, he thought that will take care of everything. Then it'll be clear, it'll look like he got her pregnant and, it, and not me. 
But Uriah was so devoted to his master, he did not sleep with his wife. He wanted to stay focused for the war. He didn't even want to come off the battlefield. And so when that plan didn't work, David devised another plan, which was get engaged in battle, and just when the fighting is intense, everybody retreat and leave Uriah to be slaughtered by the enemy. Then I can take Bathsheba into my household, and then it will look like the child is mine. David said, as long as I kept silent about that sin, I wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That child conceived by Bathsheba died. Before that, Nathan the prophet had come into David's chamber and he described a rich man who had a whole a big flock of of, uh, of, of sheep, and, and he wanted uh, one sheep from a poor man's fold, and he stole that sheep, his favorite sheep, and he slaughtered it. And David, the old shepherd boy, made him so mad, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slaughter that guy. I'm going to make him pay fourfold for what he's done. And uh, Nathan said, David, that story's about you. That's you. You took Uriah's only lamb, his wife. You killed him for her. You are the man. David said, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity. The iniquity. Not just my mishap, my, my poor decision. You forgave the utter iniquity of my sin. As long as we repress our sin, don't call it what it is, every part of it, and call it what it is by God's words, even if your buddies say, you know, that's not so bad, you must learn to call it what God calls it. You must learn to call materialism witchcraft idolatry. You must learn to call pride that which is abhorrent to God. You must call your lustful heart or those secret acts of lust, you must call them what God calls them, every part of them, or your bones will continue to waste away. You may not feel as physically distraught as David, but your life will be as inconsequential for the kingdom of God until you call your sin what he calls it. And you notice this isn't God's punishment. This is God's love. What a tragedy had he left David to this sin, but he loved him too much to let him be comfortable he made him miserable until he came to the cross. The, it was the anticipation of the cross until he came to the great scapegoat, until he came to the lamb and said, I have sinned just like you said, I have sinned. And then and only then did God lift that sin up and take it away and give him relief. Give him relief. What is confession? Confession as our Westminster Confession says, is confessing particular sins particularly. It's not just 
forgive me my sins. I confess. It is, forgive me for the murderous thoughts I had toward that brother, toward my wife. When I said those bitter things to him or to her, when I thought that way about him, forgive me of that murderous thought, that deep iniquity of my heart. It happened in this situation, Lord. This is what I said. I acknowledge fully that is what it was. And then imagine him by the word of God lifting that from you taking it away and replacing it with the righteousness of Christ. I mentioned Augustine at the beginning of our message and said he wrote his book of confessions. And uh, it's very interesting that, that Augustine, though he was, he was a bad man before he became a Christian as an adult. He followed pagan Religion, you could say it even bordered on spiritism. He, he enjoyed the, the violence of the gladiator games. That was the pornography of the day. Uh, he, he was an adulterer. He, he, he was uh, sexually impure and immoral. But in the confessions, he identifies a sin that he says more than any other represented just how depraved he was, just how desperately he was in need of redemption. He said it occurred when he was a boy, when he and some others crossed over into a neighbor's yard, climbed into their pear tree and took all the pears and just threw them on the ground so that they were all ruined. Now, when you read that, at first you say, I must have, maybe there's a page that's been inserted here somewhere. He's about to tell me the worst sin he's ever committed. This represents his total depravity more clearly than anything he's written so far. Throwing pears from the pear tree. I got that. There's something out of place. And he explains. It may not sound like <clears throat> anything significant to you, but I did that. Not because I was hungry, not because I wanted the pears. In fact, I didn't eat any of the pears. I did it for the pure evil of ruining what was important to my neighbor. You know, I've found that as, as people grow in their <clears throat> relationship with the Lord, everyone, as you continually see your life in comparison to Christ, as you grow in love with Christ, you begin to adopt his view of your sin. And I've, I've found that every Christian uh, moving on in maturity can identify what Martin Lloyd-Jones called that one sin. That when you think back on your life, you think of that one sin. That one causes the greatest pain to my conscience. That one more than any other represents that pure evil in my heart. It represents my depravity. I have one of those. And uh, I was reminded of it recently. 
there's a risk in sharing it with you because you're not going to think of me as highly as you might have otherwise, and that's a good thing. But I hope that it shows you that the one preaching the gospel to you is one who is in need of the gospel and to tell you that the gospel works. Uh, opening day, I was, I was hunting, and <clears throat> on our way back, we had one of those horrific tragedies that hunters know. Uh, one, of the, one of my buddy's uh, hunting dogs was run over and killed. And here we were, five grown men uh, around this dog, weeping over this dog, because we're all dog lovers, we're all hunters, we've all hunted with dogs. It's horrible. But it caused my mind to flash back to this one sin. That though I've always had dogs, always been a dog lover, soon after I got my driver's license, I was driving with a group of friends, a dog crossed the road, and I intentionally sped up, hit, and killed that dog. And then I was going to drive away. And the owner came at the same time, saw the incident. Dog didn't die right away. He put the dog in the back of his truck, and I ran back and then feigned concern. Lied about trying to avoid it offered to take the dog to our vet just down the road. And that man's face tells me, told me, he saw right through me, the dog dying in agony. That image haunts me. Now, some of you will say, well, I wish I had that one sin for my sin. But... You would probably say, if you told me yours, I'd probably say, I wish I had yours for mine. That's the way it is. I know that at that moment, there was nothing but pure evil in my heart, the desire to destroy something for no good reason. Now, you could try to come and comfort me. You could say, you know, you're only 16 years old. You don't have much, you don't have good judgment. It could have been a, you, you, you know, if you'd weaved, it may have, it may have been a, 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 an accident. You, you can't say anything to make me feel any better. You can't give any mitigating circumstances or justification to what I did. It's pure evil. So thank you for trying to comfort me. But I need a Savior. I need someone to whom I can say, I directly rebelled against you. This is a creature you created, you made. You say in your word that you're concerned even for cattle. And I intentionally destroyed it. You tell me that if I, if I sin against a neighbor... I am sinning against the very image of God. And here I intended harm against a man as well as a beast. I, I can't, this, uh, there's nothing you can say to me that, that would relieve the guilt of my conscience. So, Lord, nothing you could say, Lord, I have this guilt. You know exactly 
what the scene looked like, what my heart was going through and what happened. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do to make up for it. I can't bring that dog back. All I can plead is in your mercy, lift up, take away my sin. And I can never stand before you because you say that I have to be righteous and holy before I can enter heaven. So I can't go in with a, with a pure record unless Jesus substitutes his righteousness, which would mean that when God looks on me at the judgment day, at that moment, he sees not my heart and not the way I drove the car, but it appears to him that I, in that moment, felt compassion for that animal and stopped in plenty of time and waited for him to cross the road. Jesus would have done it differently, and Jesus has done it differently in my stead. Now, I want you to think just for a moment about that one sin in your life. You know in your heart of hearts it was or is rebellion against God. You say, do this. You say, don't do that. And I say, I know, but. Or you are justifying it in some way. Well, at least it's not as bad as that. Or it doesn't appear in public. Other people do this and they don't condemn it. It still misses God's mark of perfection. And as long as you tolerate it, as long as you don't call it what it is, God imputes it to your account as wickedness, condemned. Imagine what it is. Now I want you to go with me through the Holy of Holies with Jesus. Put it on that altar. And I want you to see Jesus not killing someone else or a goat, but opening up his side with his blood and covering over that sin that God can no longer see it as it's applied to you. He can only see the righteous blood of his son. And when you live with the Lord that way, you can live freely. Not only can you live freely in your own conscience, but in verses 8 to 11, you can teach others. You can say to others, here is my one sin and what Jesus has had to do for me. And if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. This is what he does with David. David an adulterer and a murderer becomes our teacher. Is that not testimony to God's grace? I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Would you be able to believe David if he had not been this adulterer and murderer? 
if all you knew from him was a sanitized life, a sanitized biography that David never did a wrong thing. He was always a good little shepherd boy. He was always the top of his class. He became king, very successful, and now he says to you, now, you poor little sinners, God can forgive you. It'd be hard to believe that, but I can believe it from David. You can believe it from me. I read uh, years ago about a man named Don Smarto. He's someone that Phil Riken admires a great deal. He became a college leader, college ministry. Don Smarto originally was preparing for the priesthood. And he confessed that the real reason he wanted to be a priest was not so much he had a, had a heart for God, but he, he, he loved the vestments and he loved the, 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 the ceremony. He loved being... He just loved being admired at the center of attention. So one uh, day while he was in seminary, one evening he went out to watch the movie, and in the movie there was this scene of a, of a priest, and uh, he walked out into the wind, and the wind blew away his robe, and underneath the robe was a skeleton. And, and Smarto resented that image because he, he said, that's, that's me. I'm hiding my skeleton. There's nothing underneath these robes. I'm a hypocrite. I'm, a, I'm doing this for all the wrong reasons. He continued on in seminary, but that, that plagued him more and more that he had, this, he had this, this, this sinful core. And no matter how many times he confessed, no matter what he did, no matter where, what level he attained to in the priesthood, he couldn't do anything about that. He couldn't make it right on his own. One evening he was in utter despair, so he, he, he left his, his, um, his dorm, he walked out into a cornfield, and just as he was in the middle of that cornfield, there was an, an eclipse of sorts, a, a cloud went over the moon, and it became absolutely dark. He couldn't see his hand in front of his face. He panicked a bit. He thought, this is, this is what God is doing to me. I'm, I'm actually descending into hell. And he heard a hum. So he groped along until he bumped into this post. It was a power pole. And he looked up, and just as he did, the clouds parted, and the pole had a cross section to it. It looked just like a cross. And he said, I got the message. I'd been trying on my own to purify myself, but I needed someone to lift up, carry away, cover my sins. I grabbed that rugged wooden pole. I hugged it. I wept under it for hours, it seemed, he said. And I looked up, never ceased to look up, and I imagined the blood dripping from Jesus' wounds into the sinful parts of my being, putting me back together as a human being outside of my own robes, forgiving me, restoring me. That's the only answer. It's not you trying to justify yourself, not you getting a therapist to tell you you're okay, I'm okay. It is fleeing to the cross and saying, all of my sin is exactly what you call it. Cure it completely. 
and view me in the righteousness of Christ. Blessed is that one whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord does not count iniquity. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take these words and apply them very specifically to our need. I pray for that brother, young, middle-aged, advanced in years, thinking on that one sin right now, that great failure. Would they call it exactly what it is, not to increase their misery, but just the opposite, that they might hear you say, you are forgiven. That sin is covered. I will never count it against you. Oh, Lord, may they leave this place unburdened. May they leave this place and go through this day with the joy of your salvation, a contagious witness to those around them. Here is the answer for your every soul's need. If he can save me, he can save you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.